for all of Jesus' ministry, every time he did something spectacular, he said the same thing to the people that he had just healed or exorcised or raised to life. What did he say every time? Shh, don't say anything. For all of his ministry, Jesus kept them quiet. He would not let them say what he had done and who he was. So when we come to this day, this day we call Palm Sunday, it is the day when finally... Finally, the Lord Jesus receives the praise that was his all along. Finally, he allows them, he invites them, in fact, to call him King of Kings and Lord of Lords, to cry out Hosanna, to applaud and cheer and welcome him into the city of David. So this day when we join in singing holy, 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 we are joining with those crowds who finally had permission to say who Jesus was and to thank God for his appearance. May he appear here this day. And he already has, hasn't he? What great news we have heard from from the Hacklins. It just fills our heart. I'm so glad that they finally spilled the beans because I've been so afraid I was going to be the one that spilled the beans. So the word is out. And uh, we just are so grateful for God. I will just say this. Of all the churches where you could learn how to be a pastor and a parent at the same time, I can't think of a place they, should, they are better to be at than right here than the Sweetheart Church, Chapel Hill. We went through this. You guys walked us through this journey. And I know, I know that you're going to join with them and take on your responsibilities as their church family in helping them to raise this child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So it is a great day, yes? How about a, a clap to the Lord for the good thing God is doing? The other day as I was driving home, I had the most extraordinary experience. We were, I was winding along the road to our house and suddenly a bald eagle swooped down from the skies and right in front of my car, about 20 feet off of the ground, right in front of me, down below the tree line and he's just flapping along in front of me. And as the, as the road turned, he would turn and I turned and I was following this eagle. It was awesome. In fact, when I got to my driveway, I didn't even want to turn off. I, I, I stopped the car right in the road and just watched that white tail go off into the distance. And he came to the end of the road and he came to Wallachet and he just banked around the corner and disappeared from sight. It was awesome. It was a little confusing though too. I had never seen anything like that. I actually had to look twice to, to be sure that it was really what I thought it was. But it really was what I thought it was. I was being led home by an eagle. It just doesn't get any better than that. For the last many, many weeks we have been journeying together through something we've called the 90-day challenge. And we've moved into the, the last week of the 90-day challenge. I want to ask um, how many of you at some time in these last weeks have sometime have participated in this challenge to read one gospel chapter uh, a day? How many have done some part of it? Great. How many of you in this last week jumped into the gospel of John with us in these last seven chapters? Any of you? All right. Great. This is, this is awesome. You know, in the early church, each of the gospels was given an image. Did you know that? They were assigned an image. In an illiterate society, uh, when they looked, for instance, at artwork or at the uh, stained glass window, there was an image for every one of the Gospels. Matthew was a lion for the Lion of Judah. Uh, Mark was a man. Luke was an ox. Do you know what John was? The eagle. 
He was the eagle. Why? Because it was said that the eagle is the only creature that can look at the sun and not be blinded. And the belief of the church was that when we read the gospel of John, we were looking most surely, most clearly into the face of the incarnate Son of God. That when we turn to John's gospel, we are seeing an image of Jesus that we see nowhere else with such clarity that we are staring into the radiant face of God in human form. So, we're going to turn now to that gospel again as we continue our journey and we're going to allow that eagle to lead us to our spiritual home. The truth is, though, that that journey can be somewhat confusing at times. Um, How many of you in your spiritual walk have had a time when you were very confused about what God was trying to do in your life? Raise your hand. Yes. I mean, you're praying, praying, praying. It's not like you're ignoring the Lord. You are trying to hear what he's saying and you just cannot figure it out. You cannot, you are just confused. You, you prayed for that, that guy, that perfect guy to come into your life, and he does come into your life, and then he dumps you. You, you pray for a job, and, and you get one, and, and you move your family to go and find that job, and three months later, you're laid off. You prayed for a baby. You prayed for a child, and the prayers just seem unanswered. Or worse, you, you got your child, and then your child was taken from you. How many of you have gone through a a season of pain and confusion like that? You pray and you pray and you pray and you just cannot make sense of it because God seems to be asleep at the switch. There are some confusing moments in last week's scripture readings, weren't there? In John chapter 13, we read that Jesus uh, gathered the disciples for a, a meal. But before the meal, he did something quite confusing. He took off his outer garments, remember? Wrapped a towel around him and what did he do? He washed the feet of his disciples. And were those disciples confused? Yes, especially Peter. They didn't know what to do with this. Foot washing was normally reserved for the lowest slave on the totem pole. And yet here was Jesus, the the Messiah, their Lord and Master, kneeling before them washing manure off of their feet. That is pretty confusing. Later on in in the same chapter in the meal, Jesus tells them that he is going to go away. And he says, you know where I'm going. And Thomas speaks for the rest of the disciples when he says, Jesus, we don't have a clue where you're going. What are you talking about? Where is the way that you are talking about? They were confused, weren't they? And, and then in the chapter that we read today, John chapter 16, Jesus says something really quite unusual. He said, it is good for you that I am going away. And the disciples would have listened to that and and they would respond the same way that we would respond. How could it possibly be good for Jesus to go away as opposed to him being there? Basically, he was saying, you're better off without me. And we say, how could that possibly be the case? And once again, the disciples were confused. But perhaps the most confusing moment came in a story that's earlier on in this week's reading out of John chapter 11, where Jesus receives the word that he is good friend Lazarus was deathly ill. And so I want to tell you that story. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary was the one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. 
Jesus, when he heard this, said, This sickness will not end in death. No, this is for God's glory, so that God's Son might be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Then he told the disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, only a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. And yet now you are going back there? Jesus went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And I'm going to go and wake him up. The disciples said, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus was talking about his death, but the disciples thought that he meant a natural sleep. So he told them more plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, Well, let us go also then and die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and and many Jews had gone to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the, at the last day. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, Martha said, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And when she had said this, she, she went back and called her sister Mary aside and said, the teacher is here and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went out to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but stayed out where Martha had met with him. When the Jews who were with Mary at the house saw how, notice how quickly she got up and, and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He said, Come and see, Lord. They replied, Jesus wept. 
The Jews said, see how he loved him. But some said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone across the entrance. Take away the stone, Jesus said. But Lord, said Martha, sister of the dead man, by this time there will be a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you will believe in me, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of those people who are standing here, that they might know that you sent me. And when he had said this, he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of cloth and a cloth around his face. Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. The story comes out of John chapter 11. If your Bibles aren't open there, you might want to turn there and refer to it as we journey through this majestic story. The first gospel, Mark, was written about 60 AD, about 30 years after Jesus left the earth to go back to heaven. Matthew and Luke followed along after that. But the Gospel of John from which we are reading wasn't written until much later. In fact, when John wrote it, he was in his 90s. And it was written near the very end of the first century. And you might ask, why did John feel the need after so long a time to write another Gospel when there were three perfectly good Gospels already in circulation among the early church? I think one of the reasons was what I told you earlier. As John read the other Gospels, he wanted to be more clear about who this Jesus was. uh, That when we were looking at the story of Christ, we were not looking at just a great prophet or a great miracle worker, but in fact, we were looking at the incarnate Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity who had deigned to come to earth, take on human flesh on this rescue mission. And so in John, we see Christ portrayed with a glory and a radiance that we don't find in the other three Gospels. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God in the very beginning. That's one of the reasons I think he wrote that Gospel. Here's the other. I think as John read through all the other Gospels, he kept slapping his forehead and saying, I can't believe you guys left out some of these stories. I think he wrote the Gospel because he didn't want some of these stories to be lost. The story of the turning of water into wine, Jesus' first miracle at Cana. Or the story of the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well that Jesus met with. No one else tells us that story. Or how about the story of the man at the pool of Bethesda? Jesus comes along and says, do you want to be well? These are magnificent stories. And John said, we cannot not pass these on to the next generations. But I think of all of the head-slapping moments for John, the biggest head-slapper had to be this. They didn't write about Lazarus. Are you kidding me? 
I have got to tell the story. I cannot die before I have told the story of Lazarus. And so he tells this great story. But it is a confusing story too. Why? Because when Jesus, who was up north in Galilee, 90 miles away from Bethany, heard that his friend Lazarus was ill, what did he do? Nothing! He stayed there. He tarried. He didn't go. In fact, we read that now Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and yet he stayed after he'd heard that he was sick. He stayed for two more days. That doesn't make any sense. How many of you have ever had bad news when you're on a trip or on vacation somewhere? Any, any of you? This last week, uh, our elder... Uh, Bart Brinstad, one of our elders, was in, in Hawaii. And while he was there, his mom had a stroke. And shortly after that, his dad had chest pains. So when I called Bart to check on him, what do you think he was trying to do? Yes, he was trying to get an earlier flight home. Why? Because he loves his mom. He loves his dad. He wanted to be at their side and serve them however he could. And we, could, we need to continue to pray for Rosemary too because she is still struggling. So that tendency of us as human beings makes this verse 6 all the more confusing. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. We would say, wait a second. That's not what we would expect to read. Because he loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, the minute he heard He hightailed it to Bethany. Isn't that what we would expect to hear? He made his way immediately, but that is not what we hear. He dawdled. On purpose, he dawdled. And this is confusing for us. And his disciples were certainly confused. Jesus said that he was going to wake up Lazarus. The disciples said, well, if he's sick, he needs to sleep. It'll make him better. Jesus has to explain, no, I mean, he is dead. Lazarus is dead. And then you hear the wheels turning in their heads. Lazarus is dead? Then why didn't we go immediately to him as soon as you heard how sick he was? This is the house that you stayed in when you were in Jerusalem. These are your closest friends there. Why did we not go to him so that you could heal him as you healed so many others? Or if he died so that you could raise him up? As you raised up Jairus' daughter or as, as you raised up the, the widow's son in Nain. Why did we stay here, Lord? He was your friend. This makes no sense. This is confusing. Jesus gives an answer, but it doesn't really clear things up. He says, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. So that you may believe. And we say, what? That doesn't make any sense. How, how does Jesus not, how, how does his being absence from his place of greatest need help them to believe? Isn't the exact opposite the case? And if Lazarus is already dead, then it really doesn't make sense for him to return because the Jews are looking for an opportunity to kill him. None of this makes sense. But he's the boss. As Thomas says, well, then let us go too that we may die with him. And off they go. After they had completed this long journey back, Lazarus had been dead in the tomb for four days. And this is significant. Pay attention to this. The Jews believed that the spirit of someone who died hovered around the body for three days. And it was only on the fourth day that the spirit was taken up to heaven. Can you see the significance then of Jesus' delay? 
by waiting until Lazarus had been dead four days, it meant his spirit was truly, truly, truly gone. In fact, by now the body was starting to decompose when Jesus said, take the stone away. Martha protested, always the fastidious one. She said, listen, there's going to be a bad order. It's been too long. I like the King James version of it better though. She says, Lord, he stinketh. Lord, he stinketh. Don't take that stone away. Jesus responds in the same way to Martha as he did to the disciples. He said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then he prayed, and then comes the most spectacular moment in his ministry. He shouts toward the now open maw of the tomb, Lazarus, come out! And out he came. This four days dead man whose spirit was long gone, whose body was beginning to rot, he heard the voice of his master and he rose to life. And did you notice that Jesus called him by name? Have you ever wondered why Jesus called him by name? Because there were other bodies in that tomb. If Jesus had just shouted an indiscriminate, Come forth! Everybody in the place would have risen up, bitten by the voice of the Creator, right? Jesus had to be very specific about which dead body he was ordering back to life. Lazarus, only Lazarus, come forth. What a story. But it is pretty confusing. The disciples couldn't understand why Jesus dawdled. And they couldn't understand why he would walk into a death trap. The sisters couldn't understand why Jesus would abandon his dear friend. And even the visiting Jews were confused why this miracle-working rabbi wouldn't do a miracle for his dear friend. Confusing. One of the great confusions of life, and it is the issue that trips up more people spiritually than any other issue, is the issue of pain and suffering. Why does God allow it? Why does he allow pain and suffering? And our answers are always rough because we, part of us says we don't know exactly. But we know that one part of the answer to that question is this. This world is, is, is infected with sin. We live in a broken and sinful world. And, and one of the consequences of that is death and disease and pain and suffering. Someday, the Bible promises all of the sin will be taken away. Someday, there will be a new creation. All things will be made new. All things will be good. There will be no more death, no more dying, no more disease, no more tears. The Revelation, John writes that later on in the book of Revelation. But that's then. It's not yet. And in those not yet times, the Bible teaches us two things. Here's the first. The first thing the Bible teaches us is that God enters right into the midst of our suffering and pain. This is the only God of any world religion that would consider doing something like this. No other world religion has their God who enters into the pain of His creation. And yet that is precisely what happens when God sent His only Son right into the pain. And you will never find a clearer, shorter statement of this than you do in John eleven thirty five, The shortest verse in the Bible and the place to start your Bible memory program. Ready? Here we go. Jesus, yes, Jesus wept. Nowhere will you find a, a more profound statement of the identity of God with the suffering of His people than in that moment. Jesus wept. 
Why did he weep? Did Jesus weep out of frustration? Did Jesus weep because he felt powerless in the face of this awful circumstance? Did Jesus weep because he felt like he was under pressure and didn't know what to do and he was out of control? Jesus knew exactly what he was going to do. In just moments, he was going to shout to Lazarus and order him back to life and he was going to rise up. He knew that was going to happen. But that was in a moment. Right now, Jesus looked and he saw the weeping of Mary. He saw the grief of the rest of the Jews and he entered into that suffering. He wept not because he had no power, not because he wouldn't make a difference. He wept because his people wept. He wept because of their pain and suffering. Jesus, God in the flesh, entered into the suffering of his people in that moment. And that is the first thing that we need to remember. However we deal with the the struggles of pain and suffering and death in the world, our God is the only God who has entered into those places of pain and confusion. But God does one thing more in these not yet times, and we see it twice in the story. Jesus taught it to the disciples, and then he taught it again to Martha. What did he hope he would accomplish by delaying his miracle? What did he hope to elicit from his followers? What did he want from them? Did you see it? Yes, belief. He wanted their belief. He told the disciples that he was glad that he was delayed for their sake because by that experience they would believe. And likewise, he chided Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see God's glory? Jesus wanted their trust. Even in these painful and confusing moments, and especially in the painful and confusing moments, Jesus wanted them to trust him. And he still does. We may wish that God didn't allow confusing things in our life. But the fact is, Jesus uses the confusing things in our life to make his disciples. How? If life was never confusing, if we had it figured out all the time, why do we need God? We can depend upon ourselves. We could, as the proverb says, lean on our own understanding. But when confusion clouds our life, that is the time we either choose to believe that Jesus is capable of ruling our lives or not. If Jesus is only the God when things are good and clear and delightful, what kind of Lord is he? And what need do we have of him? The best answer when we are faced with inexplicable confusion is the same one that Jesus offered his friends. Believe. Believe in me. Do you believe in me or not? Do you believe I am Lord or not? Do you believe I am God or not? Do you believe that I have control over everything that seems uncontrollable to you or not? It may look dire. It may feel like four days have come and gone. That the spirit has abandoned. That the situation stinks. And it is hopeless, hopeless, hopeless. Perfect. Hopeless situations are my specialty. You may not see it now, but someday it will be made clear to you. But for now, I just tell you, for now, believe in me. Trust me, Jesus says. This morning we celebrated Pastor Megan and Larry's glorious news. And we are thrilled for them. We remember her sermon when she shared of their infertility. And we remember when that prayer chain was first 
form that represented not just their seven years of why God, why not God, but years and years of so many others who cried out to the Lord, why God, we don't understand this God, this is confusing to us. When God seems to be dawdling, he seems to be tearing, he seems to be asleep at the switch. Well, he's not. He's got you covered. He's got it covered. And whether you believe it or not, he's got it covered. If you choose not to believe that, then the confusion will only be more painful. But if you can bring yourself to believe it, to really trust Jesus, when everything looks the bleakest, then someday you, like Lazarus, are going to hear his loud voice calling your name and ordering you to be set free. However confusing your life might be right now, Jesus says, believe in me and watch for the glory of God.